0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with three very special guests. First returning uh, guest and fan favorite, Dan Hockemeyer of Basis One, Lenny Rachitsky, ex-founder and formerly of Airbnb, and Casey Winters, chief product officer at Eventbrite. Uh, Casey, Dan, Lenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks
1: for having us. Yeah, Great
0: thanks to be for here. having me. So uh, we're here to talk about, uh, among other things, marketplaces. Uh, and let's start by sort of recounting. You guys have been in the game for, for quite some time. How have you seen marketplace, uh, business models and what's made them interesting over the last decade, uh, evolve? And why are they so interesting to you now? Uh, and where is sort of the white space or, or opportunity?
2: So, you know, when I started working on my first marketplace with uh, apartments.com back in 2005, uh, I was kind of like amazed. They're like, wait, we have no inventory. Like this is amazing. Like you, you just don't have a lot of, uh, cost, So you can, Uh, do a lot of things that like, you know, coming from, you know, uh, a physical store background or a CPG background are are a lot different. So, uh, a lot of the marketplaces back then and and certainly, uh, apartments.com, it was more lead generation focused. Like you didn't actually transact on platform. Um, you kind of sent a lead to, you know, in this case, an apartment owner. If they wanted to get in touch with you, they got in touch with you. If they actually transacted, a lot of times you didn't know. And then we started moving into more transactional marketplaces, which was super exciting because we were able to control the experience, control quality, Uh, but it was still fundamentally about connecting buyers and sellers and transaction would happen on platform. But all you really did was connect and maybe have a few levels of trust. And I think now there's been, like, much more of an evolution into how much of the experience can I actually own. So, you know, have people really facilitating the transaction, owning a piece of the transaction, or now, like, fundamentally saying, do I, like, integrate with supply or do I have some of my own supply and some of the supply? Managed um, marketplaces. Yeah, managed marketplace model as an as an example of that. So you're seeing this evolution of kind of from fundamentally, like, very low control and not even having the transaction take place or verifying that a transaction take place to almost like full control over the marketplace. And I think figuring out like where's equilibrium for these in different markets is super exciting. And I think like something that we're discovering every day.
0: And why is this transformation happen?
2: So I, I think there are a couple of things, um, you know, when you started building online marketplaces uh, you had to kind of make money quickly, be profitable very quickly. And now uh, as things have evolved and we've built many billion dollar businesses uh, using this model, um, people are starting to look at um, other industries where the marketplace model can work, which sometimes need to have more ownership and require kind of more venture capital to get up and running. Now that venture capital is available so you can actually make an attempt at building that. And a lot of the places that are like the super profitable lean uh, industries to build a marketplace on top of have been picked over quite a bit. So there's always room for innovation, but I think people are starting to look at these areas that either have regulation or they have high fixed cost, and saying, you know what, there is a marketplace to build there. It's a little bit more complicated. And people are thinking about these, you know, kind of V1 marketplaces or even V2 marketplaces. If I'm going to build a better version of that, then I need to own more of the experience, which means I need to have more upfront capital. I need to be able to control it.
3: I would wanted to kind of add the like bear case for going too deep here. And I would love to get uh, both of your reactions to this. So like, What you articulated, Casey, is I think totally right. Going deeper, deeper in the transaction, and along the way, you get a higher and higher take rate. Uh, But like, there's another name for a business with 100% take rate, which is not a marketplace. 100% agree. And so, like, effectively, what you're doing over this time is like getting rid of some of the things that make marketplaces great businesses, the like low capital intensity, scalability. There's like maybe a more subtle point around handicapping your network effects because you're commoditizing supply and so the selection doesn't matter as much anymore so like the asymptote of the value of network effects gets there much faster and so you see like you know amazon in a place where it's truly winner take all but uber and lyft because they're Network effects, ask them so, so quickly, like they're kind of duking it out and degrading each other's margins. So, there, I totally hear that there's like places that you can go uh, that are really interesting and lots of interesting businesses being started there. But, like, whether they have the potential of some of the like legacy marketplaces is yet to be seen. I think. Yeah, I think you and I are maybe
2: uh, in the minority of our excitement in mm-hmm. that trend toward right. the managed marketplace model. And that maybe it's just because we're too old school and, and used to some really lean capital efficient models. But, yeah, I think the question you have to think about is like before competing for this area, like what's the prize at the end, right? Like it's very unclear for most of these models, if there really is a profitable business at the end of the day. And, and some of that's like, you know, a a risk worth taking, like, you know, it's hard to argue with Uber's market cap, even though, you know, they're very far away from profitability. But yeah, I think the way I perceive it is generally bearish on the managed marketplace model but for different industries where the equilibrium is on where the effective marketplace should be can trend all the way from like, Hey, I just connect buyers and sellers. What you all do is up to you to, Hey, I facilitate the delivery, you know, kind of like a, a door to, you know, I've, i basically, you know, integrated the supply side and maybe, or maybe I shouldn't be a call to marketplace. And I think it's going to end up different in different markets. It depends on, you know, the cost um, in the market. It depends on the value you can deliver. And I think it's going to be years out before we can tell like, what the optimum structure is for each of these industries.
1: I think one example of managed marketplace is um, Airbnb plus, which uh, comes from a place of Airbnb is getting more mainstream. People are trying to uh, kind of expecting a hotel experience and something that they're, that they're used to. And Airbnb's kind of started from this place of, it's kind of an adventure and it's a unique local experience. And so the problem as an example, they're trying to solve is how do we up level the, experience. How do we make it consistent and match expectations? And it comes from a place of like, there's certain people that are just don't even think about Airbnb. And the goal is, okay, let's increase consideration across the world for what Airbnb is so that uh, they actually use it and think about it. But too soon to say if it works out and it's a really good idea.
2: Well, I think this is a really interesting trend that you see with all marketplaces, which is, you know, when you start a marketplace, they are kind of like suppliers, they know their market. Let me figure out, you know, how they want to do it, but largely I defer to the expertise of the supply in the marketplace. And then as you grow, especially at the scale of the Airbnb, you find yourself much more of an expert than the average person coming in as a host. Um, and therefore you can start telling them what they should be doing and even incentivizing them to do things. And I think overall, that's like a pretty healthy model that every marketplace moves towards is more and more um, centralizing of like the standards. Uh, but the question is with Airbnb, um, you know that variety was a little bit of feature, not a bug. Like some of those unique experiences um, that are maybe not for everyone, but different. And you know, at, I love your perspective. if you can talk about it, is you know, is there kind of a trade off between professionalizing the supply and losing some of the value prop, which is is that um, uniqueness? Because I always felt pretty like overserved by hotels. So Airbnb was really refreshing. Of like, I don't get all this fancy stuff I don't want. I get to be in a cool part of the city. With just the basics that I need, and you could potentially
1: lose some of that with Airbnb Plus, but I don't know the market. So the spectrum, if you think about Airbnb, there's like the couch all the way to maybe a hotel, and then there's like a nice place, someone's actual home, and then one step beyond that is maybe property managed vacation rental. And so Plus was trying to thread the needle between it's still a home, still someone's home, feels very personal, but it's consistent and high quality, and we vetted it. And so it tries to keep the good stuff and then get rid of the bad stuff and It all comes down to unit economics and if it's something that works long term.
3: Yeah, I do think whether curation or uh, like taste matters is a big element here. Like, if you look at like commerce marketplaces like Amazon or newer ones like Fair, uh, it's very hard to believe that they're gonna want to commoditize supply like it's all about the value of that brand the creativity of that creator um and trying to commoditize that would would limit uh the the value it also is those are the cases where you have incredibly strong network effects because you need to get the diversity uh so i think that's maybe one of the elements that determines which direction you go
2: yeah we certainly saw that with Grubhub, right of it's almost impossible to have you know uh, too much variety of cuisines or price points or locations of delivery um And, you know, furthermore, what you saw with that market is when you ran out of restaurants that did their own delivery, which is how Grubhub operated, they just started doing delivery themselves so they could get even more variety because they're, like you said, Dan, there really is no limit to uh, the network effects in that type of market versus, you know, say an Uber once, since the supply is commoditized, once you get down to a three minute SLA, it doesn't matter if you have more cars. It actually kind of works against you because those people don't make enough money.
0: What's the bold case for managed marketplace. We talked a little bit about the bear case. I think the Async CNZ post on sort of the evolution of marketplaces, they're perhaps more bullish on, on, on managed market, maybe things like Honor uh, or that they've invested in, or, or maybe other examples of managed marketplaces that people are excited about. Why don't someone uh, illustrate the, the bull case there?
1: Well, I, I guess my take is that's like a managed marketplace is the ideal experience. It's, you get ex- a really high experience, uh quality experience. It's consistent, it works, and it's it's better than the alternative. So the key is, can you deliver that and still make money as a business? Because I think one of the core benefits of a marketplace is it's just cheaper to run. It's more efficient. And if you start to move in the managed direction, you start to lose a lot of that. So I think the, the bull case is it's, the best experience and still cheaper,
3: which is hard to pull off. So I think that's critical. Actually, everybody focuses on the quality of the experience, and I think that's really important. But if you look at the examples of companies that have won, they were also cheaper. Like Airbnb was actually cheaper than traveling with a group to a hotel. Uber is cheaper than a taxi. And so, like, I think part of the bear case for managed marketplaces, you have to believe you actually create value such that you take costs out of the equation. Uh, and without doing that, it's hard to believe that you win. Well, I think another way of saying that is where
2: traditionally marketplaces have created. Uh, have competed on the network effect. Um, what you're really trying to say in a managed market is that you're competing on the economies of scale and that because you're operating these at such leverage that you can do them cheaper uh, than anyone else can. I, I think another element of kind of the bull case from a managed marketplace perspective is a, the total addressable market. <laughs> like when you talk about like healthcare, you start measuring things in trillions instead of billions and you start talking about take rate. If your take rate is a hundred percent instead of 15%, well then Maybe you can build a much more meaningful revenue business, certainly with lower margins, but potentially a much larger business overall. So, uh, yeah, I think Andreessen in Horowitz is much more bullish than I am on the managed marketplace model, but it's really hard to say like, Oh, they're totally wrong here because these are massive markets that require more control in a lot of cases to build the ideal experience. You can't do it by just like having a lead gen, you know, service. So that's, that's what you have to figure out is like, is the prize at the end worth it? There's certainly some metrics that say yes. There's certainly some metrics that say no.
0: And what different assumptions do might they have different than that you have such that makes them bullish on it?
2: Well, I think Andreessen has a lot more money than me, first <laughs> off. So <laughs> More uh,
0: capital-intensive? Is
2: yeah. It- so they're not afraid of capital-intensive businesses. They have a large they fund. They think the exits are bigger. Than the groups, uh, yeah. And I mean, you don't just see this with Andreessen Horowitz, right? Like, I think clutter is a marketplace where you've seen them um, really – uh, have more control over the supply side of the experience. For those who don't know, it's where you store stuff, um, with them and they actually, you know, manage the storage facilities and we'll bring it back to you. It is a better experience than kind of using a traditional, um, you know, storage facility. And it's also way more capital intensive. And I think some of the venture capital funds, you know, have a lot more money than I ever will, or like, well, I can just make sure it has enough money to kind of get public and become a sustainable business. And assuredly, it's going to be operated better than some of these, you know, older models, some of which are like REITs. So they like can't invest much in R&D to get that classification. So there's definitely like some logic there. Um, and then it's just a question of like, can you pull it off? Can you execute? I think we have a tendency in Silicon Valley to say like, oh, let me go into this industry that's been around for hundreds of years and just think that like with some data scientists I can completely reinvent it or something. And sometimes the answer is absolutely you can. And it's amazing. And then sometimes it's like, oh no, it turns out this was an efficient market. And I've just spent a lot of money to do something that's exactly the same. that was, That's what's already happening.
1: Would you guys consider Uber uh, a managed marketplace, knowing that they choose the car for you? There's no real experience. There's not like a feeling of a marketplace experience.
2: Well, I, I think uh, what you brought up earlier around thinking of like Airbnb plus as somewhat managed means that there's like a spectrum here, right? You know, all the way from like, you know, lead gen at the bottom end to like, I don't actually have supply. I just own everything. And it, neither Airbnb nor Uber is certainly on the that end of the spectrum, right? But they do take a lot more control, you know, than say a, a Grubhub in, in that case. So I don't think of it as managed, but I think part of the problem is that we haven't really um defined this term super well. So is managed marketplace just a euphemism for, you know, I bought all the supply? Uh, or <laughs> yeah, which is essentially like a normal business, not a marketplace. Or is it going to be a term that defines, well, I take a lot more control than marketplaces, you know, of the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years have traditionally done, but still have suppliers that, you know, don't work for me. And like, this is even a legal dispute with Uber in, do these people actually work for Uber or not? Um, which, you know, I don't think is the case for some of these other marketplaces that have similar levels of control. Uh, and, you know, I'm not even sure where the law is going to sit. There's literally different laws in different States now.
0: Yeah. And so to the extent that you'd be bullish on any managed marketplaces in, in different sectors, is, is Honor a good example or elder care or child care? Or, childcare? or where, What are good examples? Uh, like, Would you likely to invest in a in a, com- in a marketplace or a managed marketplace in one of those sectors? Or how might you think about that?
2: Well, I actually do like Clutter as an example. I know that's not an Andreessen in Horowitz company. I think it's Sequoia, but I think it's a massive space. There are fundamental reasons that competitors or incumbents, I should say, uh, would not invest in improved user experience. And I think if you can get all of those things correctly, uh, then uh, you have the opportunity to build a, a pretty massive company uh, without even really disrupting the incumbents. You can probably build a billion-dollar business. So I have no clue how that company is doing. I'm not in the investing game. But wh- when I saw people investing in that space and moving more and more towards like controlling the, the entire uh, ecosystem – it made sense, right? You can facilitate delivery instead of driving to a shady part of town and, you know, having to make sure you have your SUV with you. So I, I'm not like, Oh, anything that looks managed is like a terrible idea. It's just not really the type of business I tend to work with because I'm used to, you know, and maybe it's just ingrained from my early apartments.com days. I want like that. No inventory. I want incredible margins so that I can just focus on building the network effect. And that's the type of stuff that, that excites me. Uh, but there's definitely potential there. There's, it's not like everyone investing in this is just like setting their money on fire. Yeah.
3: One thing to add to that on the point of honor is that's a case where, again, being outside the business and not having a bunch of detail on what they're doing, it does seem like they're partnering with these local sales agencies that have all the relationships and they're taking over the operations piece, which they can actually make more efficient, right? And so they should be able to make this a better experience, a lower cost experience. Um, and so that's a case where it feels like I would be bullish on,
0: on that one. What about childcare? I think people have been talking about Airbnb for childcare for for quite some time. Could could you see that that working out, or how might you evaluate that space?
1: I think there was an Airbnb for childcare. I don't know if one exists right now. And I think if you think about the trust you need to stay at an, at, at a house, I think Wonder School counts, right?
0: Yeah, or daycare, or, or yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I guess just thinking about trying to convince someone to take a risk at having your kids stay with them. Comparing that to like, I'm going to stay in someone's stranger's home. Okay, a few reviews are good enough. So I'm curious what it takes to get someone over the hump. I guess Urban Nanny is a good example of that where people trust uh, a nanny they find on the internet to, to see their kid or to watch their kid.
2: Well, I think one interesting difference between, you know, like childcare versus like the Airbnb space is um, child care. Once you find someone you trust, yeah, you just want to lock in on that right. person uh, yeah. uh, forever And I think that's been a real struggle to build a massively successful marketplace where it's, uh, you only want to find someone once and then, uh, there's really no advantage to have the retention of that engagement happen on your platform. So I think what marketplaces that have had this dynamic have tried to do is move into more management territory where it's like, yeah, I handle your acquisition and then I facilitate payment, I facilitate trust. And occasionally if you get all of that right, it works out. But, um, those outcomes have tended to be a lot smaller if they're successful at R at all and, and much harder to build.
1: Yeah, Bill Gurley, I think, has that as one of his rules of, of marketplace health is is how monogamous slash non-monogamous your relationships are. And Uber is a good example of you're never going to want the same car again versus, yeah, like a babysitter or, a, or even a healthcare, I guess. You probably want the same person over and over, and then you don't need to come back to this marketplace and use it again.
3: It's interesting. One of the, so we're talking about one dimension, which is how deep in the stack you go. The other thing that this gets conflated with sometimes is like the horizontal versus vertical dimension, which is super interesting. I think you know a thing or two about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we saw, you know, at some time, was before my time, when they chose to Get, go into every category at once. Uh, it would, you know, credit to the team for being able to like make that work. I understand the draw towards a vertical marketplace, and it's easier to build a better experience for that vertical. Um, it's easier to generate initial liquidity, but like bullishness on the overall opportunity for those businesses for me is is less. I think for a couple of reasons. So one would be just customer acquisition economics mean that you need either high frequency or high AOV and you're by definition kind of splitting the market and that was Thumbtack's advantage the whole time is you could trade people across categories but the other is just like a consumer experience element where like I think um, Marco at Thumbtack said this and it resonated it's like if you play this out 10 years can you imagine people have 20 apps for different service categories on their phone it's really likely that they want one and so maybe actually the route is people build these vertical marketplaces and they end up getting acquired like that's what I think happened with Reverb. Etsy, for example. Um, but uh, whether they stay independent franchises is, is harder for me to believe. Yeah, I think that whole blog post on like, oh,
2: every element of, you know, Craigslist is going to become its own marketplace. And I'm like, but only a few of these are things you need more than like once a year. Like, uh, and I just think, you know, that's part of the the evolution of marketplace business model is we've gone and built really deep businesses in all of the areas that are going to have monthly or higher frequency. Like, we've done food delivery, we've done transportation. It turns out the list thins out pretty quickly after that. So um, when you're, you know, thinking about kind of going horizontal versus vertical, um, like, what is the designated frequency of that vertical? And if it's low enough, um, then you're either going to have to, like, you know, own the acquisition channel when people want to use that thing again, because their chances are, they're not going to remember you. If you have an amazingly cheaper and better experience like Airbnb, they will, but that's pretty hard. Or you have to have some other, you know, hack where you have like a non-transactional experience that stickies people uh, or there's like an insurance play to it. It's just, it's just a very difficult thing to pull off. And Dan and I have had a lot of conversations about this. So I think when you're in one of those spaces, you can either be like a very non-successful vertical marketplace, or figure out how you uh, expand verticals very quickly to increase that frequency. Uh, but then you have to deal with like you know, heterogeneity of the customer base and the supply, which is you know, something we, we deal with at Eventbrite. Like you wouldn't think of, you know, uh, event organizers as like very heterogeneous, but it turns out they're doing every possible thing on the platform. Uh, you know, they're. They're hosting backyard barbecues to festivals, to recruiting events, to community organizations. And of course, all those people have different needs. So it, it requires a sophisticated you know, organization uh, to be able to manage that or decide which of those people you're
3: focused on versus not. So one interesting example in the food space uh, is Slice. It seems like they're doing like a good job at taking specifically one vertical of pizza. And so then you're like, uh, does that mean we're going to have a marketplace for like Thai and <laughs> Indian and sushi? And the answer is... Pizza is like fifty percent or more of all food delivery, and so they just happen to take the big market. Like, I don't think it actually is an example of a true kind of vertical marketplace. Totally agree. There's a
2: lot of XCMOS people at that company. Actually, they've got the data. They have the data.
0: So let's pretend that uh, us four are running a, a fund solely focused on on marketplace businesses. Uh, and I'm curious for where we where we would look, what a request for startups w- w- would look like, uh, and where we'd be excited. Maybe horizontal versus vertical is one axis of of analyzing that. Like. What other horizontal marketplaces might we look to, to invest in? Or might we, uh, say, Hey, there's, there's opportunity here.
1: I think maybe we could start with just like, what are attributes of a good marketplace? Um, so I think it's supply and ideally demand is highly fragmented so that people can't find it easily and you have to bring it together. Uh, it's non monogamous. You want to find different, different people to buy from each time. Uh, high frequency, high transaction costs. You basically just get points for each of these things that your marketplace has. Uh, maybe another one is you're in the payments flow, and all transactions go through you. Maybe another is there's a good reason to stay on the platform. That's that's a big problem. With marketplaces disintermediation. Is there anything else you guys think about?
2: Well, the one that you know I think about a lot, which you know Kevin Kwok wrote a blog post on recently, is is it is the supply leveraging like an underutilized fixed asset? I think when you look at most of. Uh, the marketplaces that we've worked on, there's been something that's just like sitting there waiting to be used more effectively that ends up uh, allowing supply acquisition to scale a lot easier. So, you know, we see that recently with like hip camp, it's just like land that's sitting there not being used uh, that you can turn into a beautiful place to camp relatively easily. You know, a lot of people don't realize this about the food delivery marketplaces, but like the kitchen is an underutilized fixed asset. You can always pump out more food. You can't always put more people in the front of the house Um, which confuses people when they talk about, oh, the margins that Uber is charging are crazy. And it's like, well, if it's basically your, most of the, the cost is rent, um, then, you know, these, these restaurants aren't stupid. They have a lot of margin to play with. uh, And that's why uh, these marketplaces can play around with that. So I've started to look more and more about like, yeah, what is the thing that's not being uh, utilized effectively that could be utilized more effectively? I think there's another thing that I've started to think about recently, and I don't have like a really good framework for it yet, but I'll just kind of throw it out there, which is, is that marketplace the most frequent use case for those potential assets? Um, So when you think about you know, Uber versus like GetAround or Toro. Like when GetAround came out, I was like, oh, brilliant. These cars are sitting there not being used. Um, and yeah, they can be used for kind of rental cars. But then what's used more often than the rental car use case, like getting to work. So it turns out that I think a large percentage of GetAround's business is just cars for Uber now. So how do you think through not only like, okay, is that an underutilized fixed asset, but is that the most frequent use case for it that you're building on top of? I think... WAG versus like Rover dog vacay was another example of that. Like dog boarding happens a lot less frequently than dog walking. yet It's the same people that love taking care of dogs. So, uh, you know, I think Rover's rebounded from, uh, you know, WAG overtaking them due to, I think, stronger execution, frankly. Uh, but originally WAG just surged past both of those companies because the frequency rate was a lot higher.
1: Actually, I talked to someone from Rover for this marketplace research that I did. And when they were going through this, kind of big debate internally of whether they should expand into the dog walking. And there's always this tension between focus and doing the thing you're doing and just getting really good at that or expanding into this new business line. And usually people expand too early, but they kind of went the opposite direction and they waited too long. And it has and it's like such a better business because it's more frequent. It's exactly the same people that use rover. And so it was a a big miss. And then
2: well I think what we're seeing with a lot of this evolution of marketplaces is entrepreneurs starting to ask is there a stronger form of product market fit here? That's possible, right? And in the case of, um, you know, the, the the dog walking space, there's a more frequent use case that leverages the same supply, right? And in the case of food delivery, uh, maybe there are some advantages to actually like owning the delivery of this food, though, you yeah, know, I'd say very variable in, in reality, whether it's more effective to have someone um, taking the ownership of the delivery from the restaurant. So I think a lot of this leads to, oh, well, maybe I just need to have control to have a stronger form of product market fit. But I think as, as long as you're asking that question of like, am I missing a product market fit that's stronger or am I just expanding into another vertical? Because, um, you know, we got a lot of pressure at Grubhub to, you know, expand into like what Groupon was doing or a lot of other things that leveraged the same supply, which was, you know, SMBs. And, you know, we focused on food delivery and it turns out that's like a 70 plus billion dollar market. So why bother expanding uh, and, you know, built a very profitable public company as a result. But I think it's, you always need to be thinking about that. So I think Uber is a good example of doing this right in that, you know, they built uh, Uber black, right? And then when they saw kind of Lyft come out, they're like, oh, that actually is the same mission. It's just a stronger form of product market fit. It's, it's cheaper and even better. Um, And then do the same with kind of Uber pool. And I think uh, that's a healthy way to think through the conversation An unhealthy way is like, oh, do I expand into another vertical? If you have to, because the frequency is low, then maybe that's right. But um, there's easy ways to get tripped up here. And I think the best practices are just starting to emerge on this.
1: Airbnb went through a similar tension, I think, maybe in 2012, where everybody was pushing them into Airbnb for boats and Airbnb for dogs. And you got to get these before other companies start doing them and, and you lose. And I think they did a great job staying focused. And part of the way they did that, I don't know if you guys have heard the story about these Snow White Frames, where they kind of realized that a journey on Airbnb is like a story. And so they hired a storyboard artist from Pixar that kind of drew out the key moments of a journey of a guest and a host and put that up on the wall in the office. And it helped everyone see how deep the Airbnb experience is and how uh, unoptimal a lot of the moments are. And so it gave everyone a, a strong perspective of there's so much more work to do.
2: Yeah, I think operating like a service blueprint style for your marketplace helps you understand, A, well, if this is complicated. Expanding into something else can be pretty complicated. And then B, uh, how much is left to be done? You know, I think you see this with all the SaaS companies that are like, oh, I'm just going to slap a marketplace on top. And it's like, well, have you actually mapped how much work it takes to like make your current SaaS business works? Are you really at like peak product market fit there? Uh, Because if so, like you, well, great. But if not, which is most likely where you are, you've got a lot more work to do on your core business before you can think about this expansion. And that's really something that... Normally, companies don't even think about until after they go public, and there's a reason for that. Like, it's really hard to build a separate business like that.
3: Yeah, I think demand aggregation is really hard. There's a reason it's the thing that everyone is willing to pay the most for. Right. Uh, it's because it's very hard to get to. I think the other direction is really interesting, right? Where you you have uh you're connecting supply and demand, and you layer on services as a way to lock in. I think like one metric that. Is has seemed to me to be very important in marketplaces that maybe less so elsewhere is share of wallet. Like how much of your supplier's business are you getting? Because the monogamy okay. point is really important, right? If like you have this multi-tenant problem where people are using multiple marketplaces, it's way easier for somebody else to come in and take your liquidity or take share. But, you know, this is why uh, another problem that Uber and Lyft deal with where if... They can't keep you the driver on their platform and you're driving for others. That liquidity is is accruing to other platforms, which is why all of their incentives are structured around streak bonuses and all these things to try to like pull you in. Uh, So I think the using tools as a way to lock people in is really interesting. That direction is much, much more. Do you care more about that problem on the supply side or the demand side, kind of the multi-tenanting? What's more important? That's a good question. I would think that likely uh, in the supply case – Because what you're, what you're effectively optimizing for, I think, uh, as the growth function in, in a marketplace is, is the experience that demand has. Like, how do you create magic for the demand side? Um, and the main way you create magic for the demand side is having all the right supply. And so I think if you can effectively lock other marketplaces out of having that supply, it's much easier to build a moat. Well, I think this is a reason why companies that have leveraged
2: underutilized fixed assets like Airbnb have been able to grow so fast because it really is a whole new supply coming on market that they are much more likely to to own versus kind of share with others.
3: Yeah, completely agree. One question on the underutilized fixed asset thing. So I hear you. Having worked on a bunch of marketplaces that did not have an underutilized fixed asset like uh, Thumbtack and Fair and some of these others, I wonder how much of that is like a growth channel rather than the ultimate strategy, right? Like if there's underutilized... Asset and you're the first there. It is certainly easier to roll it up because not, you're not competing with anybody else. It doesn't necessarily mean that the market is bigger or that's a better better business in perpetuity. Although I'm not sure of that. I'd be curious what your your takes are. Well, I, I think
2: generally, and you probably have more experience with this, Lenny. Like you, you scale out of it, right? So Airbnb started with entirely unique inventory, and now it's starting to accept you know boutique hotels and maybe even non boutique hotels. I don't, not exactly up to date on where they are with their strategy, but yeah, I think it's more of that. Um, getting started quickly and being able to find something that's better and cheaper, like you said, like it's, if it's just sitting there not being used at all, it's way easier to excite someone to get on the platform with some money versus like a perfectly optimized amount. And I think those are the, the things that tend to kind of kickstart that. But when you see, you know, larger businesses... Uh, get into marketplaces like you know Facebooks of the world. It's not necessarily as much of a concern because they can brute force it. They can spend right. the money. Um, they can they can make it happen in a way that like a seed stage marketplace have, will have trouble.
1: I'd say the good the good of uh, finding uh, an underutilized asset in a marketplace is that it's new money for somebody. The bad is you have to train them and teach them what this is and how to host and how to treat people and how to be uh, how to have hospitality. So you're kind of first to teach people a lot of things that they have, that they had no idea what to do, which takes a lot of time, and then someone could later come in and kind of ride that. And so something you see at Airbnb's once people get start doing it for long enough, then they start cross listing because now they know what they're doing and they let's get bookings everywhere, and so you start to run into this problem.
2: Well, I think it's a, a very big problem. Is do people kind of scale out of product market fit with a platform or do they scale into product market fit with other platforms as well? Uh, which I'm, I'm sure, uh, Airbnb ran into. I mean, a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs will be listening to this thinking great problem to have. Like it clearly means I have some product market fit, but you want to make sure. And that's probably probably another thing in terms of the attributes of a successful marketplace that you'll be able to scale with your supply is. success. Cause if they're just going to grow out of you, uh, you know, like let's take, for example, if everyone who started accepting payments via Stripe, as soon as they got to, I don't know, a million in, in ARR, uh, they would have to switch to PayPal, right? Like that would be a really bad business, but that's not what's happened with Stripe. It turns out there is lock-in and you want to make sure that same lock-in exists
3: uh, with a marketplace. That that dynamic, I think, Lenny, you serve with with uh, Patreon, where like if you become one of their top patrons, I'm not sure what they call them, yeah. um, they have yeah, so much... Right po- creator, (laughs) you they now have so much pull that they don't need the demand generation function of that marketplace anymore.
1: Right, and they just create their own site and bring everybody with them. Yeah, Because they start to drive, Patreon wants to use them to drive patrons to other creators because it's this marketplace and they don't want, you know, they're trying to grow everybody. And so, yeah, they call it the graduation problem, which is something Etsy they said ran into, where people start selling enough and they don't need to pay these fees, let's just create our own site. And so that's part of the reason Patreon decided to pivot out of the marketplace to the right. point you're talking about Casey and just kind of realize we're a SaaS platform. Let's just become the best tool for creators to make money and not promise demand. And it seems to be working out.
2: Yeah. I think that was a very mature decision for them in terms of saying, okay, well, well, where's the value? It's just entirely servicing uh, the creators on, on the platform. And therefore if we're not providing enough value, that's the reason they leave the marketplace versus they they've become too successful for the marketplace. So Yeah, they don't even kind of consider themselves a marketplace. And I think that's kind of like an interesting thing with some of these kind of like proto-marketplaces or marketplaces that are working on building kind of these cross-site network effects of, well, if you build that, which is really hard, What actually is the end game? Like, is there a demand side that's going to like come to Patreon to like, you know, uh, see all the cool creators? Or in the case of Eventbrite, like, you know, come to Eventbrite to find cool things to do. uh, And then how does that change the experience of the supplier? How does that change the dynamics of the supplier? So, you know, an interesting thing that Patreon and Eventbrite share is, uh, you know, the creators feel responsibility of driving their own demand. And of course, you know, we now, buttress that with a lot more demand through like seo and people coming directly to our platform but uh if that's that's all you're selling is demand uh will they feel like oh well like eventbrite should take care of if people show up to my event like why would i bother that that could be like not an exciting thing so i think the way we think about it at eventbrite is like okay helping these creators be more efficient is job one right and then if we can do that job well we can also help them with demand but that's like a secondary thing uh to the success of the platform and i feel like Patreon even went even further being like, demand is entirely on the creator and our job is to help them be more efficient and, and help them with tools. And I think, uh, I think it seems like it was the right play for them.
1: And the way they described it is they were able to slice off their entire demand side of their roadmap and their discovery and just put all the resources on creating the best tools for creators, which I imagine just helped them accelerate a lot of things.
2: Well, I think they didn't even confirm that there like was a demand side to the market, right? Where did they really prove that people want to find new creators that then they financially support to me is a little bit of a stretch that there's a very large market of people looking for that.
3: So, so this is the key, right? Like if, if demand wants to transact with supply, that's great. But the platform also has to be built around discovery. You have to want to find new supply and there the, therefore the marketplace generates more value. And so if you have this like one-to-one relationship, there's actually no additional
0: value being created by the marketplace. So what, what's the difference between something I like Spotify and, and Patreon.
1: So Patreon basically now looks at, at Spotify as their model where they want to be a platform for creators to just make money and Spotify or did you say so- Spotify or Shopify? Spotify. Okay, sorry. I, I think about Shopify. Say Shopify. Yeah. <laughs> so Shopify is just like this platform for small businesses okay. and I feel like I've been hearing more like Shopify for X more and more recently which is really interesting. That happens when you become a $50 <laughs> really billion company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, Shopify. So they kind of look at themselves as they want to become the Shopify of creators. And, and yeah, so all Shopify does is creates makes it really easy for you to start a little small business.
0: And they have to hope that their tools are so good that they won't just do it on their own site or exactly. do it on their own.
1: Exactly. Passion economy.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you really got to respect the focus from their roadmap, right? They're so close to being able to aggregate demand for their supply side. Um, and there would be certainly a higher take rate on the other side. But it's interesting that they don't because I think they recognize that there's potentially conflict of interest when you start doing that, that these are brands uh, that you would then have to, to make the marketplace work, surface their customers to other brands on the platform. Um, and you kind of get away from truly just trying to create value to making them the best businesses they can be. Yeah, you're talking about Shopify.
2: Right? Exactly. Yeah. Shopify. I think, I think it's really interesting. Uh, yeah. So I like, you know, wrote a post on this kind of transition from SaaS model. You should
1: read this post, courses. by the way. Radio um, listeners, read Casey's post.
2: Thanks for the plug. I did not pay him for that. Uh, and I, there was like a public market investor who, who read that and then like wrote in response to me like, oh, this makes me like bearish on Shopify being able to like build a marketplace. And it's like, no, 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 no. You should not be bearish on Shopify. They don't need to build a marketplace to be very successful. Um, and yeah, it's probably healthier if in Shopify's case that they think of as like, you know, companies that help you with demand as apps that you can use on their platform and pay them a take rate or or things like that. And I mean, the reality is that's kind of how things work, but the size of the e-commerce market is so large and the effort it would take to have something that rivals Amazon so great that like, you don't want them to get distracted. Like you were saying Dan. like you want them to focus on just providing the best tools that you're integrated in all these companies that are like, are going to grow on their own because they have really great products. I think it's, their
3: execution's been
2: pretty flawless as of late.
3: Totally. I mean, look at the roadmap that they're doing. Instead of that, which is like owning the logistics stack, that's a huge investment, which uh, you would be hard to kind of weigh against aggregating demand if you were trying to do that at the same time. And so, I think it's really interesting that they've just said they're gonna they're gonna fully own that value delivery. And like ten plus years of
2: investing in a developer platform, which you know is something we're in the early stages with Eventbrite, and I think it's really interesting how. All of these companies that have, you know, really heterogeneous um, supply like that have decided, well, like the only way to scale is to allow developers to target pieces of the supply to make the product market fit stronger over time. And I think, you know, Shopify, WordPress, Salesforce are all just extremely great examples uh, of that. And I think, you know, other people tend to look at developer platforms and being like, I don't really understand that. I don't understand how it relates to marketplaces. Um, and the reality is, it's you know, deciding, well, instead of me in this case aggregating demand on my own, I'll let other developers that are interested in that, you know, help my my suppliers do that. And I think that's worked really well in the case of Shopify, but it took patience.
0: Yeah. I'm curious to zoom out and ask ourselves, how much do we as an industry really understand uh, about marketplace in the sense of, I feel like people missed Airbnb. I feel like people missed Fair, I, I feel, you know, a lot of money was poured into Uber for a lot of Uber for X companies that didn't work out. You know, it, it seems like we're not yet at the point where we can just, you know, throw darts at like, there's going to be, you know, multi-billion dollar spaces here, here, here. Am I wrong? And why is that? What's your take?
3: Well, uh, let's pick like one element of this, which we're seeing now, which is B2B marketplaces specifically, which like some of them that are emerging now, it's less that like some technology has changed. It's more just like that we seem to be getting around to them now. Um, And I think part of that is like the typical founder, would be less exposed to the problem. So like when I met the team at FAIR, the only reason I understood what they were doing is I had like managed an e-commerce business on the side for a while and had drowned in hundreds of PDFs. Like it's really hard to buy from independent brands. And so like you immediately can see what they're doing. But I think like, could I do the same for Convoy or Rig Up? Or so it's like very unlikely that I would have seen that. And so I think it's partly just exposure. On the B2B one specifically, though, it's also possible that some of these are like not as good markets for marketplaces because specifically on this point that we talked about around fragmentation, when you have a B2C marketplace, consumers necessarily give you fragmentation on the demand side. And so this is why I think some of the the best examples of B2B marketplaces are going out for SMBs where they are fragmented. So some of those uh, are not going to be as good of marketplaces, but I do think there's likely some like undiscovered territory on the B2B side. Well, I also think if you're thinking about
2: you're a founder and you want to start a marketplace, you compete with all founders for consumer marketplace ideas. And for B2B marketplaces, you only compete with people who have a very deep knowledge of that space because that's usually what it takes to identify the opportunity. So that's why when you asked earlier, like, oh, where are the interesting marketplace going to be built? We talk more about attributes than we do about industries because we don't know these industries. So like we can we can know when we see them if they have the right attributes, but uh, it would be you know hard for me to have known about the inefficiencies in the wholesale market, you know, until I talked to fair and learned more about uh, what they were doing and why I was uh, being so successful. So uh, there's a reason that, you know, trends tend to start in consumer and then move to B2B later. It's because it's like consumers an efficient market all the time. Everyone's thinking about it and B2B, you have to have some specialized expertise to recognize the opportunity in that vertical or that industry and, I think it's been. I think a lot of people were just like, "Oh, B two B marketplaces—they're not a thing. Like, they don't work." And it's not that they don't work. It's that, yeah, it was required like the right person. And I think Sarah Tavil had spoken about this on your podcast a, a while back, um, which totally resonates. Of like you. It's much more of a case of you need the right founder with the right deep expertise, which probably in- implies that like they're older, they've spent 10 plus years in that space. Uh, they know all of the ins and outs to be able to make this work instead of just like, you know what, it's too hard to order food
3: or it's too hard to get a taxi. That's Everyone experiences that at some point. Yeah, yeah one thing building on this, like... Working on a marketplace is kind of like unraveling all these layers of the onion because it's super complex. And I think if you have intuition about what the what's at least one side of the marketplace needs, it makes that easier. If you have businesses on both sides and you don't understand them, it's really hard for the PMs and others on the team to get inside their heads. And so, actually running these businesses is really tough.
1: And maybe going back to the the question that you asked, which is why is it so hard to know where marketplaces are going to be successful? I think it's I think it's really simple. It's not that different from just like it's hard to know if startups are going to be successful, if any business is successful. I don't think there's anything magical about a marketplace other than it's just an inefficient way to solve a problem and it often makes it cheaper. And so, so I don't think it's any different from that.
2: I think that one thing that makes investors and others ask this question where they don't necessarily ask it in other areas is that it seems like marketplaces have been like enduring the entire time we've been thinking about, you know, internet focused startups. Whereas a lot of these other things were like trends that like, they were an opportunity for a while. And then they're kind of over like, you know, social networks is like one example people talk about, though. I don't necessarily agree that they're over. It's pretty hard to build a new one. Uh, and marketplaces just seem to have been like trend resistant. So when they're trend resistant and you know, the earliest ones started in the nineties, uh, then I think people tend to ask, well, like, oh wait, why doesn't one exist here yet? Uh, and I think it, it's a, it's a very confusing thing. Um, But that's one of the reasons it's like they seem to be like an enduring property, you know, startups is that like, oh, there's just going to be a bunch of marketplaces every year that come out. Whereas in most other spaces, though, maybe SaaS is getting to this level. It feels like you ride a trend, the trend's over after a while, and then we don't talk about new companies in that space. I wonder how much
1: of that is just like hype and fad. Like I'm sure there's many SaaS companies that have been doing great for a long time and it starts to feel hot because maybe there's a few that are doing really well. Because it feels like there's just like, how many business models are there? There's like SaaS, there's Marketplace, there's e-commerce, maybe platforms, I don't know. And so you think they're just like going to always be around. And then there's just a sense of, oh, this is really hot right now because there's a really successful company. And let's all invest. And then, oh man, a lot of these didn't work out. I think Uber is funny, right? As an example, like I think it's almost too soon to say if if like a Uber for Uber works because they haven't made money. right, right. <laughs> And so
3: we've all these Uber for X companies haven't worked, who knows if Uber for Uber will work uh, on this like enduring point or like why they're so consistent. Uh, that one, one thing that could be true is just uh, you're by def- definition tapping into transactions that are already happening in the real world. And you're figuring out how to get in the middle of those, whereas the other categories are often creating something from scratch. And so by one measure, they should maybe be easier to identify because you can go find these transactions existing in the world today. But uh, that seems to have. We still seem to be leaving some things kind of uh, behind.
2: Yeah, I mean, what I hear from from you guys is that marketplaces have sustainable growth, and a lot of uh, these other models, um, you are know, kind of moment in time. So, you know, b- back to our growth then. feel like we're working on the best business model. So <laughs> we should just keep doing that.
0: So, to, to that end, for for entrepreneurs listening who are look uh, in in the on deck phase and looking to start start a marketplace and just sort of getting smart on different spaces. And it's my understanding that the Thumbtack team did a sober evaluation of where were the opportunities and then ch- chose this one. What advice might might we have for them? And I guess one way to scope the question for you, Casey, is you were mentioning fixed assets before and you mentioned Hipcamp as an example to, uh, and uh, I think Uber uh, as an example. Are there other sort of fixed assets that you think are interesting, but perhaps underutilized or could be utilized in different ways?
2: Um, the, the ones that I had thought about um, was more related to Where uh, regulation is artificially constraining supply, so you know these might not be things that you can pull off given uh, some of the regulatory hurdles of some of the current generation of marketplaces. But I looked at like uh, actually like doctors and lawyers are things that are artificially constrained due to you know different associations, Uh, and maybe there was an opportunity there where hey, there's there's potentially more supply that could help uh, that could be unlocked. But you have to navigate some of the tricky waters that, you know, Airbnb and, and Uber and Lyft navigated to actually not get shut down uh, versus having, like, some amazing um, underutilized asset um, that's sitting out there. I would probably just have started that if I had seen it.
3: I think the, like, over – like, the biggest underutilized asset of all time is, like, people's time, right? And so, like, if you think about what's going to happen with the combination of there being a bunch of that sitting around – And some whole categories of jobs going away in the future that's going to free up more of that. You get to effectively a new swath of the services economy. So child care and elder care, but also therapy and coaching and one-on-one kind of uh, models. And so uh, I think that it seems like many businesses have struggled with the economics or the actual kind of model there. Like if you look in the kind of coaching and therapy space, for example, it seems like businesses like BetterUp that actually own the supply Uh, or have a tight tight relationship with the supply have done somewhat better than true marketplace models. Uh, But I could imagine that that's an area that's going to be transformed over time.
1: One that I've been thinking a bit about uh, inspired by a company that I'm talking to, which may be even more of a, I don't know, important underutilized asset is, is our knowledge. It feels like we have so much information in our heads that doesn't really help other people that it could. And it feels like there's like, I don't know, podcasts are one way to get that out and Quora and I don't know, Twitter, but it feels like there's a lot more that we can leverage across the, all the brains in the world to help each other.
0: Yeah, I create a lot of value with this podcast. I should be capturing <laughs> more right. of it. it.
2: What's your it's take, having...
0: right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I
2: think, uh, you know, when you think about that in a professional setting, you think of like services like GLG, which, you know, feel like they've totally missed the potential opportunity of... You know all the collective knowledge of you know people in business or in sports or, or whatever, and yeah, I've always really been drawn to that as like a the internet wants to happen, wants that to happen even without a business model, like the number of people that contribute to Quora or, or Wikipedia or whatever. And then if you're like, okay, well, without even that intrinsic motivation to have it happen, you can play on both financial capital and social capital to like convince even more people to do it, which I think Cora did a really good job of early on. And a lot of people kind of built up a personal brand through just being on that platform very early. And yeah, you're just kind of amazed that we haven't systematized that more.
1: And the company I'm talking to is doing exactly that. They're trying to disrupt some of these guys.
3: Yeah, we were just talking about these the other day. It's so interesting. Like alpha sites, GLG have come from the very top of the market. Like who can we charge $2,000 uh, an hour for? And that will justify us to have a sales team and will go sell it to private equity and consulting firms effectively. But there's like the 95% of people below that tranche that are totally underutilized today. I guess my question on that one is like, is it a platform like LinkedIn that should be doing this? Like it seems very difficult to bootstrap that one because of the difficulty in, uh, in liquidity. So I'm where you start on one of those.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the other questions is like, who really has the expertise? Like, I'm sure we've all experienced like someone saying some like growth or marketplace advice on Twitter and being like, geez, that's like way off. So how does the market really tell uh, who has the knowledge versus who is pretending to have the knowledge? And this is particularly tricky in, in knowledge-based systems because a lot of people who don't have the knowledge want the simple answer. So they like the very simple tweet that seems to explain everything instead of really wanting to go into the nuance, um, which might end up in like an advisory engagement that will take you two years to, to learn or, you know, thousands of hours. So I don't really know how you, um, navigate through that problem because there are, there are certainly entrepreneurs that are willing to do the work and understand that it's like a 10 year game. And then there's a bunch of people that just want the answer. Whereas like you know, trying to get the answer from either of you is like, well, I've been working on this for like over a decade. Like I can't just like sum it up in 140 characters. It's it's tough.
1: Yeah, but I'd say uh, as I've been looking into this a bit, I think I think people don't realize how much they know. And until someone asks them a question, they're like, oh, wow, that's so easy for me. And totally agree. For somebody else, it's like, wow, that's, that helped save me many hours. Um, just like leaving Airbnb, like it didn't feel like I learned that much. And then I started writing about it and talking to people and it became really clear that there's a lot I did learn. And I think a lot of people go through that experience. And I think there's a lot of people that don't like aren't, don't sit on Twitter and don't go to podcasts that also have a lot of that insight. And so I'm curious what happens once they start getting quest- questions, direct questions, maybe that are really
3: I don't know, that they could make money answering. Going back to this question of where should you focus, like what what types of assets should you be tapping into? I think one test would be where could I reasonably generate liquidity. So like. Liquidity is the metric for a marketplace. And, and, uh, before you get there, it's probably the only thing you should focus on. And the the simple definition is, is it reliable for both supply and demand sides? And so if you can't imagine a world where you you have a path to reliability, it's a really hard marketplace. And actually, like this, this knowledge marketplace is an example. Like I totally agree that there is stuff in people's heads that we need to get into people, other people's heads. But the challenge of liquidity is so difficult because of, uh, the amount of nodes you need to connect to make that work. Um, that categories of knowledge. Exactly. Like how do you even make that legible? Um, and so uh, there may be other examples where you could imagine that liquidity happening um, easier, being able to scope down to something that's more manageable.
0: Uh, on my podcast, I think that you mentioned earlier about Sarah Tavel, she mentioned people focus too much on growth, but not enough on liquidity. Un- unpack how, or say more about that or how, how should entrepreneurs be thinking about filling, filling liquidity or, or, or growing or scaling that?
3: So, so yeah, I think effectively liquidity it matters on both sides. And, uh, you know, if I supply or I demand, uh, a unit of demand can come to the marketplace and expect to reliably find what I want. And so the earliest manifestation of this would be a demand side conversion metric or some proxy for it effectively. And that will typically correlate to retention or satisfaction or something that tells you that they had a good experience. Um, and I think importantly, you have to get down to the like canonical unit at which you need to build liquidity. So in thumbtacks case, you know, we had a big heat map. Categories and cities, and only at the intersection of those do you actually uh, you need to think about liquidity for plumbers in Washington D.C. Uh, because that's the unit that a consumer cares about, um, and that. Also makes that marketplace pretty hard for that for that reason. Um, if you don't have geographic bound, it may be easier to generate liquidity, for example. So once you get down to that level of like the the canonical market, then what's the metric that you're measuring that by? Um, and if you have multiple of these markets, you can look you can compare across them to get a sense for like what's healthy and not healthy. But until you get to a reasonable conversion rate on the demand side, you probably don't have something sustainable, um, and you should be focusing uh, on that in isolation. It also is the case that. Because marketplaces are one of the only businesses where your cac uh, your customer economics are actually going to get better over time, it's okay to invest uh, more than you think you should to drive liquidity because uh, your uh, that that kind of curve is going to turn around. while well, you'll convert better, better, you'll retain better
2: over time. Yeah, DoorDash is an extreme example of this. I agree. It's like a GrubHub. I think they were just shocked at how much money those companies were willing to invest to build liquidity in these early markets, you know, Grubhub, we're talking about a company that did a 1 million series A and a 2 million series B, like it's very cost effective from the start. And I think what, you know, those founders realized is that like liquidity is worth an infinite amount of money. So we'll invest unscalably in ads. Um, So I think, yeah, uh, uh, Sarah's point is very cogent in that there's kind of like two segments of growth. There's one is get to liquidity and that's when you kind of do things that don't scale or aren't profitable and you're, you're willing to almost do whatever as long as the, the market is big enough so that when you get to liquidity, you can focus on really like what are the scalable like growth loops that are, that are going to drive the business uh, long term. And I think that's like something that people get confused and I know it's like a huge point of like Airbnb's growth is, yeah, to get to liquidity, you do things that don't scale. Once you get to liquidity, you're thinking about how do I scale this as fast as possible and maybe I don't do some of those things. I think the difference in kind of Grubhub experience versus what you were mentioning is we also had a metric on the supply side, which is essentially what amount of orders per week gets the restaurant to the point where they're not going to leave the platform. So, you know, you might think about it as a founder being like, well, if Grubhub only gets paid when you send extra orders, then, you know, why would a restaurant care how many orders they get? Like, they'll take any incremental order. But there's like a, an amount of work it takes to fulfill Grubhub orders. And if you're only getting like one a month, you're going to forget how to do it. You're going to have a bad experience for the demand side. So what we found is like, once we got people to like a couple orders per day on the, on the supply side, there was no way they would ever leave. And if they did leave, they would come back in like three months, right? Because they would just realize, um, all the demand uh, they were missing. So on the supply side, you have to figure out, um, you kind of what amount of demand matters um, to keep them on a the platform. And on the demand side, um, you have to figure out like, okay, do you have uh, enough supply that you can either drive a retentive experience if it's high frequency or a high conversion rate, if it's if it's a low frequency experience. And what we saw in every market at Grubhub is once you got to a certain amount of results on on the demand side, conversion rate effectively like doubled, retention effectively doubled. So a lot of kind of like our liquidity metrics were like, How do we get to that many restaurants per search? And how do we get to this many orders per week per restaurant? And then we knew we were there.
1: So to that point, I don't think there's actually a big difference between liquidity and growth in that to get to liquidity, it's going to be grow supply or grow demand because it's a marketplace. And so it's always going to be figure out which side you need to grow and just grow that. And often you, to your point, there's like a metric you pick for, here's how much, here's what supply, healthy supply looks like in this market or here's what healthy demand looks like. So essentially they're the same thing. And then it's just a matter of which side are you focusing on?
3: Yeah. totally. So I think, so I, I totally agree having a supply side metric that ends up looking like a share of wallet metric effectively. Like we were talking about prior and you need some like, you know, uh, amount to basically reach like, you know, takeoff level where they'll stick with you. And then if you can get all of it, all the better, because you'll lock them in. I do think though, I'd be curious on both of your takes on this because there's like a lot of debate on how much to focus on one side or the other. I think in the end, if you aggregate demand, you win because supply has a profit motive. And so if you can bring them demand, they will, they will typically stick around. And so. I think worrying more about demand retention than supply retention makes sense. However, there's obviously a balance here. I'd be curious what you what you both well, think. Well, I think it's tricky because you know most growth loops involving
2: marketplaces use supply to attract demand. Yeah. So this confuses a lot of people who are maybe working on their first marketplace and thinking like, oh, supply is all that matters. And it's like, no, demand is all that matters. But you do all the work on supply to guarantee that you're going to get the demand. And, and through you know Grubhub, that was very specifically, we aggregated the supply into landing pages for Google so that we could dominate on SEO. And then that brought the demand. But uh, yeah, there's this confusion of like, well, demand is the only thing that matters. But in order to get demand, I usually have to do some sort of aggregation of supply to create a scalable growth mechanism to drive demand uh, and then I just make sure I continue to own that. And then the suppliers are going to stick around because it's where all the customers are and how they get paid. And that's primarily how they're going to evaluate value of a platform. So I completely agree, but there's this nuance that confuses founders and confuses kind of early people working on growth and marketplaces to think that like, Oh no, I just make supply happy and everything works out. And it's like, not unless it translates into this demand side growth mechanism, which is actually the most important thing.
3: Totally. If you keep coming back to this question, what makes this magic for demand? Big part of which is the right supply. I think it's like it will help clarify lots of these like complicated looping problems.
0: Yeah. An investor friend of mine his name is named Eric Stromberg at Bedrock. He told me he has this framework uh, for evaluating companies that he likes. He, there are businesses that. Are hard to get started from uh, years zero to three, but once you get them started, they they scale really well. And Airbnb is an example. And then he said the opposite: their businesses are easy to get started from uh, years zero to three, but uh, after that, it, it's much harder to keep them going. And maybe birds is an example he brought up there. Yeah. What's what's the criteria for 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 both of those? Uh, how, how would you unpack that?
2: Yeah, so I mean the way I typically think about like those two examples and Dan mentioned this a little bit earlier is marketplaces are driven by a cross-side network effect. Um so that's really hard to build. It's really hard to get that initial liquidity. You have to do it by usually like, you know, neighborhood or like I'm working with a company called Ritual where we literally have to do it by like micro neighborhoods because it's, you know, a pickup marketplace. Um, for lunch and coffee, so like it has to be something you can walk to within like five minutes, or else the supply doesn't matter. But then if you you know can can figure that out, um, then you can grow really quickly. And the interesting thing about when you do that is most businesses you target the best customers initially. They have high conversion rates, um, they have high retention rates, and you know low CAC. And then you're like, holy crap! I ran out of those. I need to kind of expand to, um, people who are less of a fit for the marketplace, who have a lower conversion rate, a higher CAC, and then lower, uh, LTV until you eventually find out you're upside down on like LTV to CAC, right? And Blue Apron is like a good example of this. So there's no fundamental network effects in that business. It's the same product to the millionth person as it is to the first person, but the first person is way more interested in that product. Uh, and you know, what Dan was talking about earlier with marketplaces is the, you know, increment. Increasing supply over time makes sure the product gets better faster than the customers you're targeting on the demand side get worse. So you tend to have this opposite effect where the customer acquisition costs can get lower over time, retention improves over time. You get smile curves where people who are ordering once a month are now ordering multiple times a month, and that's kind of the big difference between like a marketplace versus e-commerce, which has to repl- has to rely on you know economies of scale or expanding into adjacent markets, which is I think what we've seen. A lot of the faster growing e-commerce companies doing lately where they're literally like launching new brands very quickly and saying well i'm going to take my brand building skill and i'm going to take my performance marketing building skill and just stamp out different spaces that i can leverage that in uh so i totally agree like marketplaces definitely tend to pee in the category of like those first few years are tough they take longer to find product market fit uh once you find product market fit you're finding product market fit in like one market so you look super tiny and then all of a sudden, you're a public company, it feels like, yeah, right? Like a
0: bed, uh, bright, like thumbtack.
2: Yeah. And uh, from uh, an e-commerce perspective, like if you raise enough money, you can get to like 10 million in revenue very quickly because you're just you know spending most of it to Google and Facebook to, to get it back in terms of users. And then you just hit this cap where like it's way harder to find new customers. The product's still the same. And we're seeing kind of this issue where a lot of these direct consumer companies don't know where to go from there. Like, they don't have a path to 100 million in revenue. They don't have a path to profits, or they can get to IPO like Casper, and it's at you know 40% of their last valuation because it turns out the metrics just aren't that great. So you know the way I deal with that problem is like I only tend to focus on things with like that are marketplacey or have network effects, and just recognize that like oh you got a lot of cogs, not for me, man. Like I'm sure you can build a great business, but it's not the thing I'm an expert in.
3: Totally right. I think the the broader point would be if you think about the forms of defensibility, I'll take network effects over brand or something else all day.
2: One other thing about that is, so you know, we talked a lot about kind of cross side network effects here. But the other thing that's happened with you kind know, of most of the businesses we've worked on is you also build up data network effects where you actually have so many transactions flowing into your platform that you're getting all this information about the market and translating that back into either making suppliers more effective or building better recommendations for the demand side. You know, all of which, you know, we try to do at Eventbrite and I'm sure they try to do it at Airbnb at even more scale, uh, and is basically the core Pinterest product. It's essentially like, we're a giant recommendation algorithm that not only gets better as you use it, but as everyone else uses it. So these are types of things that are um, very easy for people to misunderstand. And I think there have been some posts around, like, network effects are overrated or whatnot. And it's just like, do you really understand uh, network effects? Um, and I think a lot of it has focused on the network effects in, like, social, where they can become a like, get faddish, where they go up really fast and then they go down really fast. And I think what you see with things like data network effects or cross-site network effects is, sure, they can asymptote, but they don't really go down to zero. Um, they just provide more marginal increases in value over time. And that's still great. You still have a very large business.
0: What are the interesting sort of debates or disagreements uh, when it comes to evaluating marketplaces or building marketplaces that perhaps you have amongst yourselves or you have um, amongst you know other smart people in, in, and your, your peers? What are the, the things that we're still debating or figuring out?
1: Maybe one thing at Airbnb is just what – which side of the marketplace to charge and how much and how to compete with other, other companies that are doing it in a different way. So for example, Airbnb takes a cut on the host side. That's a tiny kind of uh, credit card transaction amount, like 3%, and then puts the rest on the guests. They kind of increase the price on the guest side. Uh, but as in a hotel or kind of a professional property management booking site, it's all on the host and it becomes 0% on the guest and so people are often drawn to the, okay, this is really cheap for me. I'm not going to pay my, many fees, but the price ends up being higher on the guest side versus say on, on a competitor, the price ends up being lower, but the host is taking the, the cost. And so so one question there is, do you switch? Do you do both? Do you like change the way you handle different kinds of customers? So that's one.
2: Well, I think um, there's, a, there's a more abstract version of that problem, which I think affects Pretty much every company we've worked on and is getting worse, not better over time. Whereas I think the original kind of Airbnb case was like, okay, well, who do I charge? And it was like, oh, well, which side's harder to commence to try this? And it, I think it was the host side early on, which is why they charge demand. So you charge the side that values it more deeply. And I think the insight that the Airbnb founders had was, well, it's still way cheaper than a hotel, even if I charge the demand side, therefore it's still a valuable product. And Airbnb, I think has been really interesting in that like most companies are either like really supply constrained or really demand constrained. And with Airbnb, you're kind of like, ah, depends on the day. don't really know. But I think the more macro version of this problem, which is like gaining some steam is uh, just around like the take rate in general of like, how much should I be charging? I think you mentioned it earlier. Like if you are actually driving the demand, you charge a higher take rate. And I think you see that, right? where. If, you're just processing payments. You might charge 5%. If you're actually driving all incremental demand, you can charge north of 15. But then because your goal is to like, just increase this network effect. And because there's more venture capital uh, in the industry now, uh, I think, uh, people are coming in and saying, well, why don't I just charge a lot less? Or why don't I just not charge at all and build this network effect up? And then maybe I invent an ads model later on. And I think like, um, Offer up was one of the first that I saw this of like, wait, they're not making any money and they're getting a billion dollar valuation. Uh, and that's because they felt like building up the liquidity and the network effect was much more important than the monetization. So in these models where like you can actually raise hundreds of millions of dollars and not be expected to like turn profits quickly. Uh, a lot of the understanding of how much value should I be trying to get is changing because of competitive dynamics, what will grow the network effect faster and I, I think kind of the jury's out. I think a lot of people just tend to be like, oh, well, I'll just give it all away for free. I build a really massive network and then I can do a lot of things with that. And I think other founders are much more like, no, I want to make sure I'm charging for the value I create and make sure I align that really strongly. And yeah, I don't know where it's going to play out, but I think I think you've probably seen it with Fair. There's been some like competitors that are just like, yeah, I'll just do this for free. And then, you know, what do you do if you're not the person doing it for free? It's, a, it's an interesting conundrum.
3: I'll be curious to see where this pans out. I think if you don't charge anything, you're not proving that you have a business. Sure. And so like if you get to this to the point where on a true fully loaded contribution margin basis, you're at least break even, I think that's a place where you are more willing to hit the gas. And actually relative to other mo- other non-marketplace models, you should probably be more willing to to toe the line, right? Be very, keep prices low because your loop is going to be, Network effect and referral driven. You don't. You're not going to need a big budget for sales and marketing if you do your job right. Whereas in SaaS or other businesses, you might. Um, and so, you know, I think where uh, where we might land is like let's be very thoughtful about how we define contribution margin. Make sure these transactions make sense. But then basically, like get down to the line on that on that dimension.
0: Same more just about being thoughtful about how you define. Like, what does it mean to be thoughtful?
3: So, uh, you know, there's. Uh, kind of gross margin, it's easy to find. Then there's like a typical definition of contribution margin, which starts to load some costs on. But I think you you want to get down to loading on support costs, loading on marketing costs, anything that you could anything that you could ascribe to a transaction. You should because things like operations and customer support don't scale with transactions as well as you think they're going to. Um, and so thinking about how, how to load those on from an, uh, an early, uh, early day is pretty important.
2: Brings me to another point that you're asking about, like what are debates around? And I think level of customer service support in marketplaces is kind of a heated topic. Yeah. So every founder, you know, wants to have amazing customer service and, you know, early on in your marketplace, it tends to be the right strategy of, you know, just don't just know what take care of everyone, You know, studies have shown that, like, people have a negative experience that are made up for uh, by, uh, you know, the marketplace actually have higher retention than people who never never had a negative experience overall. But then as you scale, you get really surprised by how big a line item this becomes on the balance sheet. And then you start thinking about, well, like, how else could I use that double digit millions of dollars? Like, could I invest it? into performance marketing, which accelerates my network effect and has much more of an impact on growth. So you start to face these really tough questions around what level of support and how much you can automate, which then leads to kind of the next problem of how much of my development resources or internal resources is really on internal tools versus the product experience to the customer side. And I think what, you know, at Grubhub, uh, I see probably like a third of our uh, resources were on internal tools for people like customer service and sales. And when you look at a lot of marketplaces, they're building a lot more front end products. They don't have a lot of um, internal tools and then they're just scaling with people. And uh, that's really expensive uh, in the long run. So you, you basically face this issue on two fronts of like, Oh, I may have over-invested in customer service and promised an experience I can no longer provide. And two, If I want to have any hopes of maintaining that, I need to invest in a lot of automation, a lot of tooling so that my customer service reps can be better. And so that's something that what the perfect strategy is, I think is still being figured out, but something that a lot of founders face when they have success and they're not exactly sure what to do.
3: One thing to build on that, I think one very healthy pattern is to use your support team to basically surface where the product is broken because like... What they're doing is effectively working around places that should, things that should be done in the product. And so when you just see where their time is going, what types of problems they're dealing with, it, it often surfaces, um, back issues. And so this feedback loop is super powerful. A lot of what the, the kind of product roadmap that Thumbtack is on is because the team in Salt Lake City was, uh, kind of cogent enough to like, Basically, synthesize what was happening and say, actually, we shouldn't be doing this. Like, there's a whole product roadmap here, and that was a that was a big change for them. At Airbnb, our head of product that always uh,
1: said that every customer service contact was a flaw in the product, uh, which sometimes true, sometimes not. And so, we actually had embedded, I think they were called product specialists on each team that basically were a channel from the CX team that reported what are the most common issues, what's causing problems in CX, what are they surfacing. Uh, fun story early on at Airbnb fixed way later, uh, the average contact customer service contact per reservation was like 1.2, which meant Airbnb was more of a travel agency than even an online travel site. And so they eventually put a team on this, or many times, to work on this. It turns out the biggest lever to reduce contacts is just making it harder to find the phone number, (laughs) which causes other problems, and so you have to find that balance.
2: Yeah, it's like as soon as you have a goal on something, you've lost sight of the actual goal.
0: Yeah. Casey, you had this uh, this post on centralization versus decentralization in, in marketplaces. Why don't you sort of unpack the, the main uh, point or takeaway from, from that
2: post? Yeah, so I think you know it's related to some of the things we talked about earlier and that these marketplaces that start without necessarily a deep knowledge of the supply side of the business, at scale, they seem to have much more insights and much more understanding of what it takes to be successful um, than the average supplier. But this doesn't just happen with the supplier versus the you know, actual marketplace, it also happens with your employees. So when you're trying to get to liquidity, a lot of times you hire a lot of local people and uh, you put them in charge of, say, onboarding supply. And while they're there, they might as well do some you know brute force stuff to drive demand and get that initial liquidity, all those things that don't scale that we talk about. But then once you have that liquidity uh, and you understand like what are some of the growth levers to continue to scale the network effect you tend to be bringing some of those people in-house in your HQ, right? And what ends up happening is you're like, oh, well, I actually don't need that person locally anymore to do that thing anymore. I have experts because they've validated how important email marketing is or uh, direct mail or whatever. So now I have a person who takes care of that. And then you're left with a situation where these people who might have called themselves GMs or local marketing managers don't really have anything interesting to do. So um, you have all these vectors uh, in terms of, well, how much of the marketplace do I let the supply figure out? How much of the marketplace do I let the local people figure out? And all of these things trend toward, oh, well, the people in HQ are gonna find it over time. And what happens in a bunch of these areas is that the marketplaces wait too long to act on this information. So, you know, you probably heard about a bunch of kind of Uber and, and Lyft layoffs um, after they've gone public. And that largely is they have very large teams um, in these markets that they're like, wait a minute. I don't actually need these teams anymore. Um, so they either move to HQ or they move to more specialized functions or they have to move out of the company because there isn't anything high leverage for them to do. And I think, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft went through this process like pretty painfully um, and they waited like very long. And then, you know, when it becomes a cost cutting challenge to hit profitability, those are the places that they can't really justify or they move to regional models instead of city models. So you see all these different vectors in which the marketplace starts to um, accrue knowledge and, and make decisions where before it was, Oh, a person in the market's going to define that, or, Oh, my supplier is going to define that. And uh, it's something that I've just seen a lot of founders struggle with, which is, you know, why I wrote the post and, you know, you know, prior to me joining Eventbrite, it was working with kind of dozens of different marketplaces and every single one had some variation of this challenge. Uh, that they you know didn't have a good handle on on how to deal with.
3: So I was actually amazed that that was the first post on this because the question comes up so frequently and I was really happy that you kind of distilled it. I think the other dimension that I hear all the time is is category on top of geo. And so actually like if you have, going back to our horizontal versus vertical marketplace, if you're at a horizontal ver- marketplace with real variation between categories, you're going to need a category management team at some point. Uh, but there's a strong form and a weak form of this. So like, if you have to have a one-to-one relationship with supply in order to acquire and engage them, you're probably going to need the strong form of this. Like Amazon has category managers with big teams and big budgets who are effectively running little businesses inside Amazon. Uh, at Thumbtack, we had the weak form, not to say the team was weak, but they, they did an incredible job, but they, they did not own a P&L. They were pe- effectively product operations. They were tuning the product. They were setting pricing And that means that's a smaller team. It's a much more centralized function. And I think getting that right is really important because if you charge into, uh, you know, hiring a bunch of quote unquote GMs who then aren't actually going to be GMs, uh, you have a bunch of really disappointed people on the team. So getting that piece right is really
2: important. I think the GM role in startups is pretty attractive to founders because they're like, oh, that's a person I can go to who I know owns it. And then you look at in reality and you're like, okay, well, how much does the GM for Uber in Chicago actually own how fast Chicago is growing? And the answer is like 5%, 3%, but by far, you know, the minority impact. So what you see is there's a tendency to founders to say, oh, well, I have a person who's going to own it and they're going to take care of everything and I can go to them and I can get all the numbers. And then the reality is like, these are networked businesses. Uh, they have a lot of different components creating one product, not a product per category in the case of Thumbtack or per city in the case of, uh, Airbnb, like these are, this is kind of all the same business and they're, you know, kind of, again, like, like Dan said, like weak forms and strong forms of this, where if you have kind of a local network effect, yeah, it really is all about how many restaurants are in Chicago. Um, or if you have a global network effect where it's like, oh, I want to be able to travel anywhere. And I know that Airbnb is going to have quality supply, but in both cases, the the tendency to drive towards like, oh, well, a GM is just going to own every piece. Um, doesn't really play out well in practice. And that's why um, these roles tend to get moved on from over
1: time. I think Uber is a really good example because, and I imagine you wrote about this in your articles, they feel like the extreme where the local teams had a lot of sway and could do basically whatever they wanted. And one cool thing that came out of it is search pricing where uh, a GM, I think in Boston, just tried to just emailed Mike Powell, yeah. uh, Just emailed all the drivers like, I'm going to double your your, uh, receipts on Friday night if you just go out on Friday. And it worked and... They just manually did it and then they started rolling it out and then product built it. So, with this, exactly what you're talking about is exactly what Airbnb went through, where initially they opened up, I think, something like 12 offices internationally to compete with Wimdo, that competitor yeah. that launched Rocket Internet Guys. And it felt like it was really important that there were local on the ground teams building the early flywheels. But it felt like we went through this inflection point where the growth, and I think you were just talking about this, where the growth that they were driving. And like we didn't even know what growth really they were driving, because it was hard to measure. But anecdotally, uh whatever numbers they were showing, the product was showing like 10 times more, right. and then maybe a hundred times more. And so there's these asks that start to come from the local teams where they just want to run a one-off campaign or just like tweak this referral bounty just for their market. And then if you look at and you do it eventually, because like, okay, this team really wants to try this thing. And then it's like drives, I don't know, a hundred new homes when you're driving like a thousand every day just automatically. And so you have to go through that realization of it's not worth tons of resources to do custom stuff per market. And then what we found is those folks were, in, uh, were better utilized to focus on higher value supply, like professional supplier kind of property managers and things like that, where they're still doing, they're doing what they're good at sales and, and, and growth kind of one off and that ended up being a good use of those folks time. And I think that was a nice shift.
2: Yeah. There's a really good point there in that, When you build these GM roles, whether it's by country, by city, by category, and they ask for product support. What they're really saying is the issue in my category or market is so big that it's better than you doing something that's going to help every category in every market. And it's like, I don't know, one out of a thousand of those requests where that's actually going to be true. So what they can be is they can be a valuable source of feedback um, to the product team or the marketing team that's centralized. Um, but that, that feedback has to be aggregated so that, you know, the product managers can find the actual insight that's really affecting all the markets in a way they wouldn't have understood that can actually be added to the roadmap and have the impact. And then I think the other point you said is exactly what I've seen in that, like the GM roles that they're successful just become sales and then maybe a couple operational components on top of that, like they do the local PR, um, they maybe execute on some content marketing to make sure it gets localized properly. But what they're really going to own is sales and biz dev because those things tend to be more local and stay centralized. All this other thing is they become a feedback loop that gets aggregated in a sea of, of their peers or those roles just tend not to exist because there isn't that opportunity.
1: Yeah. And they often become very frustrated because they just like, nothing gets done. We're trying to like grow this market. We have no resources. You're not giving us any engineers or design. Something that we tried that I think was really cool is sometimes some of these markets become really important. And so you have this team on the ground that wants to do a lot of stuff, but they just don't have resources. What we did is we, we kind of picked two markets and combined the local teams with local product teams They had a dedicated product team in the office that was just there to support them, to give them, to basically collaborate on just going deep on these two markets to see what we could do together. And that was really fun and actually worked out pretty nicely.
2: Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think the other thing that's interesting is instead of, you know, local people seeing seeing you as the service organization to them, you can start to flip it and say like, wait, the local people can be a service organization for for me, whether I'm in product or in marketing or, or whatnot. So, you know, we had an example of this at Pinterest where... You know, in the U.S., um, our SEO presence was, like, pretty dominant. You know, for those of you who geek out on SEO, we had, like, a very high domain authority, right? Like, Google really trusted us. But in these new domains that we were opening up, um, you know, Google didn't know whether to trust us and uh, our local content there yet. So these local people who, you know, were trying to grow the market but didn't have tools, we were like, hey, you know, the thing that you can do that would have, like, most value to the company is just, like go sign up all the top brands for Pinterest accounts and get them to like link to us from their local websites, like Vogue.fr or whatever. And then we'll build up this domain authority really quickly. Whereas like the network effect would take a lot longer time to do it. And then we like, you know, built a whole point system for them uh, and gold them on it. And then they really took to it and they were really good at it. It leveraged their skills. And then we accelerated the growth of these markets like, I think 200% over control in one quarter, um, from, from an SEO perspective. So a lot of times, like if you think about it, like, Oh, they asking you, Hey, what can you do for me? And then you respond with like, no, here's what you can do for me. And they'll be like, cool. I'm actually getting a direction on how I can like drive growth at the company level, which is ultimately like what they want to do.
0: The uh, So Lenny, you've done a lot of original research and people should, should read your, your writings on, on how to grow marketplaces and interviewed a lot of founders of successful marketplaces and people people who work there. What, what was the most surprising or non-obvious learning uh, that, that resulted from your research?
1: One was maybe how consistent the playbook was for most of the biggest marketplaces. I never thought that it was kind of this like sequence of steps that everybody went through, which are essentially, there's kind of this first phase of cracking the chicken and egg problem, uh, kind of starting the flywheel. And what emerges is these four steps that folks go through roughly in order. Uh, one is you figure out how to constrain the marketplace. You figure out if it's like one market or one category. Uh, two is you pick which side of the marketplace to focus on, concentrate on supply or demand. And then three, you grow supply almost on all cases, and then you grow demand. So that was really interesting. That it never felt like it was going to be that straightforward. Uh, maybe another surprise was that 80% of marketplaces found that supply was the biggest issue. So that was really interesting to see that it's so lopsided. Yeah. And the three that I talked to that were not supply uh, not supply um, constrained were, it was like extremely obvious to them that supply was not going to be a problem. Rover is one example where their just value prop was amazing. Make 50 bucks for watching a dog for like an hour or two. Anytime you want, you have all full control. So it was really easy to convince people to sign up. TaskRabbit was in a similar place. And then Zillow also found it really, they basically just bootstrap supply off of data that they, that they could access. Um, so that was interesting, just like very rarely is demand the issue initially. Another is that sales ends up being the most common lever for supply growth, which it was like, man, I wish it was like something that I could just build and build a product around. But it turns out you got to say it, hire salespeople. Yeah. And so that was interesting to see that that was the most common lever on early supply growth. And then uh, on the demand side, it was interesting to see word of mouth was the biggest driver of early demand growth, which I think is a signal that just they just had great product market fit, and people talk about it. And so it's kind of a catch-22. If you have great product market fit, word of mouth is going to drive a lot of your demand. And then the second most common lever for uh, early demand in marketplaces is, is what Casey was talking about, where supply drives your demand, which is really cool. What a neat uh, loop to have, and it's rare that it happens... But it's just this free growth lever where uh, your supply is driving all your demand. So Eventbrite has some of that. Patreon had that. uh, All the food delivery companies have that where basically you're like, you go to your favorite restaurant. They're like, download DoorDash. Download to order from home. And then you're on DoorDash.
0: The fact that there is such a common playbook would lend itself to think like, oh, we can predict where they're going to be million-dollar outcomes. One version of the question I'll ask that's related to this is, you know, Mark Andreessen has this line of, uh, there are no bad startup ideas just too early. And, you know, Webvan in, in the late 90s and Pets.com in the late 90s. And so what's sort of the marketplace equivalent of, of a lot of, like, uh, subsector where there have been things that have been tried? Like in consumer social, I would say, like, uh, secret. Or, you know, uh, there are a few others. Yik-Yak, um, location-based things. A lot, a lot of these things have just failed. Maybe they'll work in the future. Maybe they won't. But in marketplaces, what are things that have just repeatedly either failed or just haven't worked yet, but there's likely to be at some point a big company in this space.
1: So a company I started back in, I don't know, 2011 uh, called Local Mine was a, a marketplace for people that want to go out and they want to know what's happening at a place. So they open up a map and they collect, click the place and then we connect them to someone that's there right now that's checked in on like Foursquare or Gowalla back in the day. Yeah. And the thing we found is just people didn't have that problem often enough where they needed to know what's happening at a place, even though it was really cool when it happened and it worked. So it's hard for me to imagine that working yeah. long term because it's not a big problem for people. And it's hard to build a marketplace on a, or even a consumer, especially a consumer app on a experience I, that isn't that, that haven't How much
0: of like press button, get experience, like set you up for a date or set you up for, for X, Y, and we'll <laughs> <to> see. That.
1: <laughs> Cherry, the car wash on demand.
0: Two ideas for me that I'm excited about one is homeschool. Um, I'm curious if there could be uh, uh maybe it's an Airbnb for homeschool. Like, I know someone that's starting
1: something like yeah, that, I,
0: I just made, made, made the same thing. might be the same and one. And then also, I'm curious if, um, if for therapists, but not actual trained ther- like listeners and people, you know, seven cups of tea. There have been people that have tried this, but I'm curious if you could, you know, take customer service people, uh, or college students that are especially good listeners. And create a marketplace around that. Or they just listen. They don't talk. Maybe they talk, just but it's there. more like reflecting back, or something it's like a playbook. But like a uh, bot, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think another
2: one that you Small know we've. Cent, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I think another one that we've we've seen a lot is like marketplaces for. Um, uh, like travel experiences, and you know, then you run into kind of the frequency problem that Dan was talking about earlier. So, uh, what we're seeing now is that those are being built on top of existing marketplaces uh, that have a stronger network effect, like you know, TripAdvisor or Airbnb, etc. But those are really hard to stand alone on their own because most people travel once a year. So it's just hard to remember to go to that thing. The timing has to be perfect. There's like a lot of things um, that have to go right that have made those marketplaces struggle.
1: Another classic one is just like cleaning services that people keep trying and never seem to work out.
0: Yeah. Another version of the question is, um, you were talking about is Uber even going to be the Uber for Uber? What is going to determine whether, uh, whether Uber, whether DoorDash, whether Rappi, Instacart, where these businesses become successful um, or or not? Like what what is the criteria by which? I mean,
2: ultimately they have to have a path to profitability, right? So like, you know, people, I mean, uh, you guys were probably around at this time, but like there were a lot of these either managed marketplaces or, or marketplaces that had high cost that you would talk to, you know, maybe like five, seven years ago. And they were like, well, Amazon doesn't make money. Like, I don't need to worry about making money. And it's like, well, Amazon has like pretty awesome cash flow. Actually, you don't. Um, so I think, uh, it's, it's, it's totally fine to like not make profits for a long time if you're investing in the growth, but you have to have like unit economics that will allow for profitability. And I think in the case of like some of those examples you've given, not only are the unit economics like really suspect or relying on some innovation that may not save them like self-driving cars but there's also legislation that's going to make the unit economics even harder like i think it's AB5 in um in California which is already forcing kind of uber to change some of their policies and i'm you know sure instacart and lyft and a bunch of other these people are are, are close behind i think the the other element of this is a lot of these companies are have Packed their way to growth by, um, you know, focusing on an element that's like maybe not quite legal. Um, so like you see like the, the tip issue, um, you know, with Instacart and, and DoorDash, you see the not paying taxes issue with DoorDash and, and Postmates. And those are things that you have to feel like uh, are going to get resolved. And if that's the way that you're eking out a profit and you don't have another way to, to manage that, then you're probably in like some deep trouble long-term. But I think ultimately you have to show that this can be a profitable model. It doesn't mean you have to show that you're like, you're making money right now if you're investing in your network effect. but you have to show how you get there. And I mean, you see that in the refrain from Uber and Lyft going public. It's all about what's the path to profitability. When are we going to get there? How are we going to get there? Here are the layoffs we're doing to get there, um, which is like, you know, some really hard conversations to have with your team uh, and with the public markets. But I think, they're
3: absolutely the conversations they need to have to prove that this is going to be a going concern long-term Casey, You might have insight in this. It seems like when people talk about like the long-term savior for some of these companies, it's taking a huge chunk of the cost structure and centralizing it. So like uh, autonomous vehicles for Uber and Lyft, that's the way out shadow kitchens for all of the food delivery. That's the way out. And so if that's true, what they're saying is the way out is to become not a marketplace anymore. Right. Uh, right. And so like, I, I'd be curious your experience having seen some of the food delivery marketplaces, is that kind of the direction it's going?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, what's interesting about the shadow kitchens and now those companies separate from, you know, DoorDash and Postmates and Uber eats are raising billions of dollars, like cloud kitchens and whatnot. And what's really interesting for me is like, we saw those restaurants pop up, like starting in like 2010 in GrubHub Like we had, I mean, essentially what happened is we had restaurants that were surprised at how much volume they were doing on Grubhub. And they're like, why don't we just start another restaurant outside of our kitchen in a totally different space? So I think the first example was a pizza place that started making burgers. And then they just marketed a burger shop on Grubhub and they started getting orders. And even though there was no physical location, the reviews were good. So at Grubhub, we were like, Cool. No problem. Like, uh, consumers like it. So for now, like, you know, I think like six, seven years later, it started to become like a thing that's like gonna, gonna become billion dollar business. It was like really head scratching for me as like, okay, so fundamentally you're saying you're starting restaurants, like not great margins, like not great scalability. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's some value in those concepts in that it allows you to test ideas rapidly. Um, you pay less in rent because you don't have to be in a prime location that can absorb a lot of foot traffic. But yeah, I'm really skeptical on how that's like going to be like the savior. Um, and then like the other interesting thing about this example for both Uber Lyft and and companies like DoorDash is you're essentially like talking about how your goal is to, uh, make supply irrelevant. And, you know, that may have worked for Netflix, but like at some point, like incumbents, uh, Will wise up on this and and will start pulling their supply if they think that you're really credible. So the fact that that hasn't happened uh, in food delivery is a sign that like uh, the restaurant chains don't think that is inevitable. And you know Uber and Lyft, it's different because people are going to take the money now, even if the money doesn't exist in five years. That's kind of the nature of the, the transiency. But uh, I color me skeptical that like these are, are saviors in, in either model because it doesn't address the fundamental profitability uh that gets us to some of the marketplaces we've talked about that have you know very low cost uh it still is like okay so you're telling me it's still going to be an extremely expensive business but now you just have more risk like uh, i get concerned if that's really going to be what the answer is
1: i wonder if the answer is just like maybe it's like a half joke answer is just volume so i found i found with amazon yeah Uh, I find with Amazon, if you look at like my history over the past 10 years of how many orders I place per year, it's just like skyrocketing. And I wonder if that's just the goal to all these guys just, you start all your food goes through them and.
0: Well, yeah. So
2: that certainly is a part of the food delivery example, because when you think about, you know, some of the stuff we were talking about Grubhub, right? Like, and the restaurants is taking care of your own delivery. It's a very simple model, right? You're just like, okay, well, is the restaurant happy? is the customer happy that's ordering the food. But you know, for, for Postmates, DoorDash, Uber Eats, et cetera, it's much more about like how much food is the driver delivering? What's the capacity utilization is like the most important thing because if the capacity utilization isn't high enough then DoorDash or whoever is losing a ton of money. So yes, there is a bit like, we'll make it up in volume sort of joke to this in that, well, if my, um, Delivery capacity is fully utilized, then I can get four deliveries per hour and you know still pay them not much more and they're eke out like some some margin. And similarly on the Uber Lyft side, well, if there's so much demand, then there's gonna be three people in the car, you know, for almost every minute of an hour. And yes, the driver makes a little bit more, but Uber makes a lot more, and that's how we eke out profitability. And we were having these conversations as early as like. 2012 when TaskRabbit started jumping into the delivery model. And I was just, and, you know, think, thinking about it at Chromebook time, we're like, wow, this just requires a level of scale never seen before back to what Dan was talking about with the knowledge marketplace concept. And, you know, theoretically, it's possible, but uh, you're going to have to burn money for maybe 20, 25 years to get there. Is, is the market going to allow that? And I think one of the things that took Grubhub sup- by surprise is, yeah, how long the market will allow that, um, which is you know how affected how they've operated in the last few months.
3: Yeah. I think the other piece of this is like, maybe you can take cost out, but if you can't keep a competitor from doing the same thing and just eating your margin, it's not sustainable anyway. Like the whole insight with direct to consumer where like, yeah, you don't have to pay for retail, but because of the uh, competitive dynamics, you're going to have to pay it in CAC. um, You know, there was actually no sustainable advantage there. And so like, where's the defensibility come from? It gets back to our conversation on network effects and other, other things.
0: Guys, this has been a fantastic episode. Any, uh, any plugs or, or for people who want to learn more, read more, uh, follow each of your individual work? Why don't you uh, point, uh, point our listeners where they can go deeper? Lenny, proud to start with you.
1: I've been putting my time into uh, my newsletter, so check out my name.com, lennyritschitsky.com or just lenny.substack.com.
3: So all these kind of questions we're talking about around acquisition and retention and monetization in marketplaces is like the exact kind of thing that we like working on. So if you are at a marketplace banging your head against the wall on one of these questions, uh, we would love to chat. We're at basis one.com. Yeah. And
2: I blog a lot less frequently than Lenny at Casey and And yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at one case man. And use Eventbrite. Please use Eventbrite. Awesome.
0: Uh, Casey, Lenny, Dan, thank you so much. For
3: thank you. Thank you.